Welcome to The Exit, the most prolific podcast for business owners preparing to transition a business. Today, on average, business owners leave 15 to 25% of their business value on the negotiating table when exiting a business. On The Exit, you will hear from some of the top transition and M&A advisors on how they help business owners like you through one of the most difficult life choices, the sale of your business. From transition preparedness to tax planning or driving value through operational enhancements, The Exit is the podcast that provides real-life insights and access to a network of experienced advisors. Brett Deering, your host, is one of the premier names in preparedness and exit planning for business owners. On The Exit, Brett will help guide you through key topics around preparedness planning while curating timely discussions focused on helping you maximize the value of your business, and when your time comes, help you realize your exit goals. So welcome to this episode of The Exit with your host, Brett Deering. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of The Exit. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of a third-party valuation. In my mind, it's one of the most important parts of a preparedness process. And in my experience, the second key reason why a lot of business owners aren't maximizing that proceed from a transaction. Um, And to help us talk about this conversation today, I have with us uh, as a guest, Tom Thurikoff, who's from Sun Valuation. It's a valuation firm and investment banking firm. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of background about Tom, Tom's a certified valuation analyst. And I'm going to verify this with Tom, but it says that he's performed over a thousand valuation engagements on a wide range of industry and markets. Some of the reasons why he's performed those valuations is mergers and acquisitions, which we're going to talk about today, succession planning, which is obviously very important, buy a sell agreements, uh, marital dissolutions, partnership disputes. And one of the things that we're really going to get into today is focusing on why you should have a valuation for state and gift tax planning. So, Tom, I want to thank you for joining us today uh, on a very important conversation. Welcome, man, and, and it's great to have you on today. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Listen, I mean, this is a very important conversation. And before we get into the dialogue and this discussion today, maybe you can tell our viewers a little bit about yourself, talk a little bit about Sun Valuation and how you got into this business. Yeah, sure. So Sun Business Valuations, we are a boutique uh, investment bank and certified business valuation firm. And I am one of the partners. I've been working at Sun for uh, almost eight years and two years as a partner. And on the valuation side, we do valuations, as you mentioned, for a lot of different purposes. It could be compliance, legal related, gift and estate tax reporting, different types of transactions. And uh, I have the opportunity to work with lots of very interesting companies. Could be a manufacturer, technology company, insurance company. So it's a very interesting role. Get to work with a lot of interesting people. You know, it's interesting because um, a lot of times when we talk about tax planning, and we're going to get into this conversation a little bit as well today in our episode, one of the things that a lot of business owners don't understand is the importance of the valuation and how that valuation really is kind of the, the key part of any real foundational, fundamental, sound tax planning strategy to be able to help them maximize net proceeds. And we'll talk about all of those components But I guess for me, you know, when I think about valuation and, you know, you and I have done several valuations together for a lot of my clients, 
that are looking to do some estate planning or looking to you know uh, prepare for a potential transaction and i guess the question i would ask you is in your mind thinking about it from that perspective why is it important for a business owner to have a valuation well there's really two components there one relates to the the estate tax planning which is very important um, sure. There is a lifetime exclusion, so you are allowed to gift a certain amount of wealth uh, while you're alive and through your estate. And the sooner that you make those transactions, the better off you are. Uh, your uh, company is likely to appreciate over time. Your wealth is likely to increase over time. And so getting some of this wealth into a trust early on makes a lot of sense. Uh, another factor here as it relates to business valuation, if you are gifting uh, some ownership interest in your company, uh, you know, when it comes to selling a company, it's very important to be informed. Um, you know, you need to know what that company is worth uh, for a variety of reasons. But when you go to sell your business, you really only have one shot to do it right. You don't right. want to invest all of this time, money, resources, focus exposing uh, some uh, you know, personal proprietary information. This all occurs during the sale process. And you don't want to work on this nine month to 12 month process and then find out that your company may be worth less than what you were hoping that it would be. Yeah. You know, so for that reason, it's important to get evaluation done, know where you stand, and then when you go to market, you know you know, what some of the possible outcomes could be. You know, it's interesting. You said a nine to 12 month process. And, you know, a lot of times business owners really don't understand for our listeners, they really don't understand that it does take up to nine months or even also as, and depending on if there are issues in the business that need to be resolved before you sell, it could take a full year uh, for the sales process to take place. And so it's important for people to understand that and for our viewers and listeners to understand that. But I think one of the key components is about evaluation, and this is probably one of the most important things that business owners should understand about the valuation. There is a set time period as to when you should have a valuation conducted on your business, and candidly, there is a moment where you no longer will be able to use that valuation, or what I should say specifically is to have a valuation, and that's usually right before you receive a letter of intent. And the reason why a lot of business owners need to understand it is because if a potential buyer sends you a letter of intent, on that letter of intent is an offer price. Now, it might not be the price that you eventually close at, but it's the price that that buyer is willing to purchase your business for. And so at that moment, having a valuation is no longer viable for you. And so what's important to understand about the, the valuation process, especially when you're doing tax uh, and estate gift planning, is that you wanna make sure that you do that valuation as a part of your tax plan, hopefully years before you're thinking about selling your business. So if you're in a position now where you're saying, hey, I have two to five years before I'm even thinking about selling my business, what I would say to you, and I'm gonna ask Tom to verify this is, have that valuation and that trust and estate plan done today, because that's where you're going to be able to maximize net proceeds by getting those assets out of your estate and into a trust and doing it at a lower value. So Tom, let me, let me ask you from your perspective, how do you think about that commentary and, and what would you also say uh, in addition to that thought process? 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, you it makes a lot of sense for business owners to work on their gift and estate tax planning early. Get evaluation done early, as early as you can before you sell the business for a couple of reasons. One, businesses, they tend to appreciate over time. So if you plan on selling the company five years from now, the company will probably be worth more. That's going to eat up a lot of uh, your lifetime exemption um, for, for gifting and estate tax purposes. Another factor here is when we're valuing a company for gift and estate tax reporting, there are certain strategies that you can use to lock in a lower value, which is very helpful from a tax standpoint. For example, if you gift some ownership of the company in different uh, blocks of ownership, minority shares, maybe there are shares that are non-voting shares. These blocks of ownership, they have legal restrictions that make them less desirable uh, than owning the whole company and having control of the business. Uh, and for those reasons, we are allowed to include some extra discount. Mm -hmm. if, as you can imagine, in the real world, if I own only a very small block of ownership in a private company, it can be quite difficult to sell that small block of ownership on the open market. And so for those, that reason, there is what's called a discount for uh, lack of marketability and an additional discount for lack of control. And so it can be quite helpful to break up some of your gifting into, let's say, two calendar years. You know, you could gift right. almost 100% of the business in two 49% chunks. Those, each of those chunks would qualify for these extra discounts. Ultimately, uh, the value will be lower, and this helps you a lot from a tax gift and estate tax for uh, planning purposes. So you're saying, so you're sharing a strategy that I think a lot of our, our listeners probably may be somewhat familiar, but I think really have been struggle with the difference between uh, an estate valuation versus kind of a market valuation. And maybe we can start there with what's the difference in kind of the process or the shares that are being valued in an estate valuation versus maybe a market valuation? Yeah, and I think the best way to discuss this concept is that in the world of business valuation, there are what are called different standards of value. And when we're valuing a, a company for gift and estate tax reporting purposes, we're required by the IRS to use what's called the fair market value standard. And okay. one of the underlying assumptions of this standard is that the company is going to continue to operate as a going concern. It's going to remain relatively unchanged. And the hypothetical buyer in this circumstance, basically a financial buyer, um, as a result of the you know, hypothetical transaction, it's not, there's no uh, inclusion of any type of synergistic or strategic value. Um, right. So for those, that reason, fair market value tends to be lower than what's called a strategic value, uh, which is a right. different standard of value. You know, imagine a, a, a company, let's say it's a technology firm, and they have a very specialized software, let's say. Company could be sold to another similar technology company that might be a quite a lot larger. They might have a larger customer base. They may be able to take this technology and market it to a larger customer base. They might be able to eliminate some expenses. 
And for those reasons, this strategic acquirer, they might be willing to pay a premium. And that would right. be representative of a strategic value. Uh, thankfully, the IRS, they don't uh, require strategic value standard. They require the fair market value standard, which tends to be a little lower. Sure. And so when you think, so that's a great, that's a great explanation. I think when you think about fundamentally the difference between an estate valuation versus kind of a market valuation, we're also talking about different share classes, right? So when you're thinking about an estate planning, uh, you know, valuation or valuation for tax planning purposes, um, you're looking at a 1% ownership of an illiquid share that is non-voting, right? So when you think about the different values of share classes that you may have within your company, you know, arguably this is the least valuable share to a business, right? A, because it's illiquid, B, because there's no voting shares. So it's going to have a lower value versus some of the other uh, preferred shares that you may have in the business. And so when using that share class to do an estate uh, planning valuation, you tend to have a lower valuation. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. And in many cases, what our clients do is they might be the sole owner of a company, mm -hmm. let's say, and there may only be one class of, of stock. They may decide for their gift and estate tax plan to create a different class, different classes of stock, uh, maybe uh, shares that are non-voting, shares that right. have certain restrictions. The controlling shareholder may have a right of first refusal or there may be some restrictions on transferability. As you can imagine, as being a minority shareholder and holding these types of shares, they're non-voting, non they may have some restrictions. Those are undesirable characteristics. And for those reasons, we are uh, able to use some additional discounts to value those securities at a lower value compared to the securities that are, have a more premium value. Yeah, and you know, I think from 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 my experience, I see this. Unfortunately, I see this a lot more than I I, I would want to see this, and I, I'm sure you understand why, Tom. But you know, I'll give you a prime example: manufacturing, a metals manufacturing comp company that I started working back with in, in 2017, really was doing very very well in 2017, and over the course of the next two or three years, the company went from 80 million dollars in revenue upwards to just over 100 million dollars in revenue. Now, when we started to engage uh, this business owner, we were engaging them uh, about you know, operational efficiencies and processes and procedures because the business owner wasn't really ready to sell, but they thought that there were some things that they wanted to do in the way of enhancements for their business, you know, henceforth asked us to help them with uh, that process. So in, in 2000 and call it 2019, the business owner, uh, I think it was early spring of 2019, received a uh, an interested uh, party or a buyer, a strategic that was interested in buying their business and said, hey, we're, we like what you're doing in this space. You know, we're looking to integrate your business with a larger entity, and this would be an opportunity for us to be able to have a regional distribution and manufacturing option here on the Northeast. And so all of a sudden, this conversation around selling the business came up, uh, and the business owner said, hey, I want to go back and you know, want to have that conversation around the valuation that we talked about in 2017. Now, I'll tell my listeners the reason why the business owner declined to do the valuation in 2017 was they said that they didn't want to spend the money and the time to go about you know, having this valuation completed. Fast forward, as I said, in 2019, the business grew by $20 million in revenue. 
at that time, the business was right under about $8 million in EBITDA. Towards the early spring and summer, it was about 9.7 estimated in EBITDA in 2019. The enterprise value of this business over the course of that two-year period went from $56 million to about $67 million. So just over $10 million in value appreciation over the course of two years. And because we did not do that trust and estate planning and that estate valuation, that business owner really lost out on the $10 million in appreciation based on uh, income taxes and estate taxes. They lost a large portion of that appreciation. And so I see that happen so many times because business owners get so busy with the day-to-day running of their business and or their thought process is, I don't want to invest the $7,000 or $10,000 that I may have to spend on evaluation. But here, that $7,000 investment was worth a $10 million opportunity to capture that appreciation in a way where they would reduce their tax obligation. And so for me, I think these are just some of the stories and examples that I share around why valuations are so important to business owners and why they should be doing that early. So what I'll just share with you is a couple of quick points, and then I think we'll go to our break and come back and we'll start to ask Tom some of the fundamental questions about valuation. But I want to answer one of the questions that was asked, knowing uh, that we were going to have this episode on valuations. One of the business owners emailed me and said, what are some of the most often or successful steps that I should be taking uh, in preparation for an exit? And I would say there's really three key steps, you know, preparing your business for the transaction. So if there are things that are within your business that need to be enhanced or changed, you want to make sure that you're doing that. Maximize the value of your business, right? So looking at opportunities to make sure that you're doing tax planning and strategies to be able to help you maximize the net proceeds. Those would be the two or three things that I think are mandatory for you to be able to have a successful exit. So why don't we stop here, go for a break, and we'll be right back with Tom Thurikoff from Sun Valuations. When is the last time you had a formal preparedness assessment conducted on your business, and why is it important? From not knowing where to start in the process to receiving bad advice, selling a business is one of the most difficult processes you will go through. It is also one of the most important decisions you will make. So why leave your success to chance? Our preparedness assessment will prepare you and your business for transaction by helping you navigate the pitfalls of the sales process. Find and fix issues that could cause a loss of value at sale or totally disrupt your ability to sell. So start today by clicking on the link in the summary of this podcast to take a quick business checkup and receive your free copy of the six questions to ask yourself before selling. Now, back to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We're here today with Tom Farakoff from Sun Valuations discussing the importance of valuations as a part of your tax planning strategy and preparation for sales. So, Tom, have a couple of questions for me, for you uh, that our viewers had asked. And the first one that one of our viewers asked was, what are the different valuation methods used in evaluation? Actually, a really good question. Yeah, excellent question. So there are three commonly used approaches to value. The first approach is called the asset approach. A very simple set of methodologies within this approach. And for the most part, what the business appraiser is doing is just evaluating what the tangible assets are worth. 
and then sure. including a negative adjustment for liabilities. So imagine we're valuing, let's say, a real estate holding company, which many of our clients have operating entities, and then they also have mm -hmm. real estate holding companies as well. In a real estate holding company, we would certainly use a asset approach where maybe we would engage a real estate expert to come in, value the property, and there may be some other assets as well, maybe some equipment, maybe there's some cash, and then it's very simple in that we would subtract the liabilities. And although this is a method that is very effective for certain types of businesses, you know, like a real estate holding company, other types of holding companies, maybe it's a, maybe a hold market company might hold marketable, marketable securities. For other entities, it may not be appropriate. Manufacturing companies, sales organizations, construction companies, for the most part, those types of businesses have goodwill. They have value above and beyond just their tangible assets. And when that's the case, we'll usually reject the asset approach. So let's talk about the other two approaches, which are the market approach and the income approach. Both of these methods are very similar in that, for the most part, they're dependent upon a couple of key inputs. One is the company's proven ability to generate income. You know, if you are an owner of a privately held company, or if you're thinking about buying a privately held company, what's the motivating factor? Of course, the financial benefits, the right. distributions, the salary, the owner perks, all of the income that the company is able to generate for you. That's why you may be willing to invest a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million because of these financial benefits. Sure. And so in these other two methods, that is a key component. And in fact, value in these circumstances are so tied to income that, you know, even as income, let's say income were to double, then the, you would assume that the value would double as well. Uh, right. So earnings and value, they're kind of tied at the hip. And there is this established relationship between earnings and value. That relationship is most often expressed in the real world as a multiple, multiple of earnings. And so within each of these different methodologies, each of these different approaches, for the most part, they're set up in such a way where we're taking the company's earnings capacity and we're applying some type of a multiple to that. Now, as it relates to the market approach, this is a comparative value method. We would look at real transactions of privately held companies that are similar in terms of size, industry, growth, profitability, volatility, uh, maybe region. And we, what we'd wanna see is, what are these peer companies selling for? What type of EBITDA multiples are these companies selling for? And there are several databases that track these, these types of transactions. And what we can do is we can take a sample of some of these transactions and we can measure what these companies tend to sell for as a multiple of EBITDA, for example, and we can apply that multiple to our company's EBITDA. So that's, mm -hmm. that's an example of the market approach. Right. Next, and then the last approach, which is quite similar, is the income approach. We are applying a multiple to the company's EBITDA, but in this case, we're going to be the ones coming up with what we think that multiple should be. And there is a formula for that it's called the justified 
multiple of earnings method. And there are several inputs needed to uh, calculate what that multiple should be. But for the most part, it's tied to what's called a required rate of return on investment. And okay. so what should come to mind is, you know, maybe some other investments that you have in things like stocks, mutual funds, bonds, annuities, all of these securities come with an expected rate of return on investment. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for an investment in a private company. And so what we can do is if we can use market data to calculate what that required rate of return should be, we can convert that into a multiple by taking the inverse of that required rate of return. So let's just use a round number as an example. Imagine that we calculate that a fair rate of return on investment is, let's say, 20%. Well, the inverse of 20%, or 1 divided by 0.2, would equal 5, or a 5 multiple. And right. there are some, some other adjustments for things like growth, uh, some adjustments for tax as well, especially if we're applying that multiple to EBITDA, which is a pre-tax level of income. We know that taxes is a factor that negatively impacts performance. We do need to include some adjustment for that. But that's an example of another method that we can use to independently calculate what we think the EBITDA multiple should be. So it sounds like based on the industry of a certain business looking to, to have a valuation completed, there may be a, an approach that is more specific to their need as an industry business versus maybe another. That is true. For the most part, if it breaks down into whether or not we're going to use the asset approach or the market approach and income approaches. If the company is a healthy, going concern, profitable business, when that's the case, we'll usually reject uh, the asset approach in favor of the market approach and income approaches. There are also some industry-specific methods that we'll, we will use depending on special circumstances. For example, insurance agents. Insurance agencies, they're very marketable companies because the revenue is very predictable based on all recurring monthly payments. And the most valuable asset of an insurance agency is usually that book of business. And the right. book of business can be valued separately using actuarial methods and things like that. So there are some methods that uh, are more tailored to certain industries. So it sounds like too that there's more going on than just giving you kind of giving the business owner an opportunity to understand what that estate planning value looks like or what a potential merger and acquisition value is. It sounds like you're also going in uh, and you're doing some adjustments and some recasting of earnings. Is that some of the components that you're incorporating into that valuation as well? That's correct. So as I'd mentioned, the company's proven ability to generate profits is very important, very important mm -hmm. input. Um, but when we're talking about earnings, we're not necessarily talking about the earnings that you're reporting on your income tax returns. In many cases, we do work off of uh, corporate income tax returns, but with some adjustments. And the reason we have these adjustments is to have a better measure of the true performance, the true earnings capacity for that company. For example, some common adjustments could include officer compensation. If you are the sole owner of a business, you could pay yourself a very uh, high salary. 
you right. could, uh, you know, almost all of the profits of the company could be in the form of a W-2 that you take. And that's actually something that we see very commonly uh, in businesses that are set up as a C-Corp to avoid double taxation. Or the opposite could be true where you're very active in the business, but maybe you don't take a salary at all. Uh, so what we'll usually do is add back the owner's salary and then include a negative adjustment for what we think that replacement cost would be. Then there are some other adjustments as well. Things like discretionary owner perks, lease vehicles that are used by the owner, some meals and entertainment, maybe life insurance policies. So there are a number of these types of owner perks the company pays for on your behalf, and you do receive a benefit from those those uh, those expenditures, uh, but they could be eliminated, you know, if the company were sold. So those are what we would call addbacks. Yeah, and those addbacks are important because I think a lot of times when people look at you know kind of their business from just an EBITDA perspective, there's not that opportunity to have those addbacks issued and or used within kind of an adjusted EBITDA. And so for that, they want to make sure that they in the valuation or they have a valuation because that has, gives them the opportunity to really kind of get a reforecasted EBITDA or an adjusted EBITDA. Yes, it's very important. If you are going to be presenting your financial statements to a buyer, you would want to have this analysis completed well before you do that. A buyer, they might request from you audited financial statements, if they're available, reviewed financial statements, corporate tax returns, but you want to send them an additional schedule as well. You want to sure. highlight, okay, those are the underlying source documents, but at the same time, please understand that you know, maybe I have some family members on payroll that they're for no-show jobs, maybe, or there are some uh, discretionary owner perks here. And when you can highlight some of those addbacks, it makes the company look that much more attractive. Yeah, that's great. I think a lot of times owners aren't really understanding that, you know, those addbacks are to their advantage to make sure that they have those addbacks incorporated into their EBITDA and have an adjusted EBITDA analysis uh, before they go into some type of sale process. You know, one of the other areas that seems to be interesting is working capital. Um, and it seems to be an area where a lot of clients, a lot of business owners specifically struggle with understanding. Maybe you can give a little bit more insights around what's important in, in figuring out what working capital looks like uh, ahead of a transaction. How do you go about helping a business owner through that valuation process establish working capital before a transaction? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're valuing a company, one of the things that we need to, to, to review is the strength of the balance sheet. Uh, and there are a lot of components to that analysis. One of them is working capital. You know, working capital is things like cash, inventory, accounts receivable, less current liabilities. And a way to think of this is it's liquid assets that you need to make payroll, uh, pay your bills on time. And it, it is a, an asset that's required to keep the company going. You know, it's not like you can just distribute all of the cash of the, out of the business without um, disrupting the operations. And some companies, however, they may have some excess cash, for example. This is something that we're seeing a lot right now, be, in part because of the PPP program, where a lot of our clients have received some uh, PPP loans. They expect that those loans will be forgiven in full, 
but in the time being, they're retaining this extra cash in the business. They haven't made distributed it out yet. When that's the case, uh, the balance sheet uh, is uh, stronger than it needs to be, and there is some extra cash. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes what can happen is business owners will, as they're trying to uh, approaching a sale, is they might want to, let's say, sell down their inventory or take some extra cash out of the business. And when that's the case, there may be less working capital than the company needs. And different firms will use different methods in coming up with what that normalized working capital balance should be. We like to look at uh, working capital as a, uh, as a function of expenses. Depending on the type of business, you should have enough working capital to cover maybe a month's worth of expenses or two months worth of expenses, or maybe only half a month's worth of expenses. It depends on the type of business, depends on how quickly the company is growing. So usually that's how we will assess how much working capital the company has and compare it to how much the company needs. Is there an excess a surplus or is the company working capital deficient? No, that's great. And look, I mean, I think from our, our listeners' perspective, the reason why I brought up working capital and why it's so important is because there is a calculation that buyers will perform to make sure that they understand what that number is for uh, working capital for a set period of time post-transaction, right? And so what I always often recommend is that, you know, evaluation is so important because it allows you to understand what that working capital number is or calculation is. And so now you have a number of what you feel working capital should be versus what the buyer has, right? Never let the buyer establish or calculate that number on your behalf. Always know what that working capital number is so that you can utilize that as a form of negotiation and or dispute if you're disputing that, you know, the working capital numbers are less, right? So these are just some of the fundamental components that you want to be thinking about and why it's so important uh, for evaluation. Now, we're almost at our time, but I have a couple of, couple, a couple of more questions that our listeners asked us um, to ask you today, Tom. And you know, one of those questions are, how does evaluation for estate planning work versus M&A valuation? And I think we covered a little bit of that in the first stage, but maybe you can add a little bit more insights on that as well. Yeah, so the big difference between those two, um, those, those two types of valuations relates to the standard of value that we're using. When we're valuing a company for gift and estate tax reporting purposes, uh, it, the value standard that we're using for the most part is the fair market value standard. Whereas if we're doing a valuation for sale consideration, we're likely going to use um, the strategic value standard which tends to result in a, in a conclusion of value that's higher than the fair market value standard. Another difference is many of our clients who are uh, gifting some ownership uh, in their company to a trust or family members, usually they're doing it in smaller blocks. And as I've mentioned, those types of smaller blocks deserve certain discounts for lack of control, lack of marketability. You know, that's great. I mean, I think the the key takeaways from our conversation today is first and foremost, if you, if you have not had a valuation, then definitely think about having a valuation as a part uh, of a 
a full-blown trust and estate plan before selling your business. I think the other component is make sure that you understand all of the elements within evaluation and how it's going to help you around recasted financials, how it's going to help you in establishing uh, an adjusted EBITDA, and also how it's going to help you establish working capital, right? So a lot of the fundamental, what we consider to be financials that go into a potential transaction, make sure that you have all of that done up front before you start the process or start sitting down at a negotiating table. So with that being said, we're just about at our time. We always like to ask our guests what we call the exit question, and that is, if there was one piece of advice you'd want to leave or offer to our listeners around valuations, what would that advice be? You know, I would say that it's, it's never too early to start this process. If you're a small business owner, likely you will sell the company eventually, uh, or you'll have some type of an exit. And the earlier you start this process, the better off you will be from a tax standpoint. Um, so you might as well uh, just get it done now, lock in a lower value. So it makes a lot of sense to do that. Lock in the lower value, do it now. So important that you said it. I wanted to say it myself. And, you know, Tom, we really appreciate your time today on the exit. For our listeners that want to get a hold of you, that may have questions about their own business, maybe thinking about evaluation, how do they contact you? We have a lot of information on our website that's sunbusinessvaluations.com, S-U-N businessvaluations.com, uh, or they could email me directly, uh, which my email address is tom at sunbusinessvaluations.com. Well, Tom, we appreciate your time today, and thank you again. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Absolutely. That'll do it for this episode of The Exit. For those that want to get in contact with me, please feel free to contact me at info at tepodcast.com for any questions about interested buyers that may be pursuing you planning to sell your business and or questions about today's podcast. So with that being said, thank you everyone. And as we always say, always make sure to keep the exit in mind. Have a great day. And until next time, everyone, thank you. You've been listening to The Exit. Start your preparedness journey today by clicking on the link in the episode website of this podcast to take a quick business checkup and receive your free copy of the six questions to ask yourself before selling. If you have any questions about this podcast or how we can specifically help you, contact us at info at tepodcast.com. Take the first step to exiting on your terms. And remember, always be prepared for the exit.